Hey, hey, Water Coolians. Welcome back to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Today, we are joined by the Executive Director of Safest Drug, Mika Polik. Safest Drug, a national nonprofit, exists to prevent and alleviate medication illness and disability and death in the United States through education, research, and advocacy. Uh, it was a pleasure to have Mika on the program to talk about medication harm and how that differs from substance abuse and, you know, why that difference matters. In the episode, we have a conversation about how some brain-boosting supplements may contain illegal prescription medications from other countries that the FDA has not approved. Like, for example, a drug that was given to Russian cosmonauts to keep them awake for long periods of time and why it's very, very, very important to do your research, ask around, and know exactly what you are putting into your body. If it's going into your body, man, do the research on it. And then in our second story, we have a conversation about the rise of medical tourism individuals, mainly from the U.S., so make your own assumptions on what that means about the U.S. healthcare system, traveling to other countries for more affordable prescription drugs and medical procedures. If you're a listener from the state of Utah, beautiful state, by the way, I always love visiting there, I may have a reason for you to go to Tijuana and get paid some money to do so. <laughs> so without further ado, I'm actually, that's, that sounds like I want to buy drugs from Tijuana. It's not, but as you'll listen to the episode, you'll figure it out. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk, episode 53, titled Medication Harm with Mika Polik. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. All right. Well, Mika, are you ready to jump into our first story? Talk about some brain boosting supplements. I am. This story is from Inverse Booster Bus, September 23rd, 2020. Study finds Russian prescription drugs hiding in, quote, Brain-boosting supplements. The packaging of so-called brain-boosting supplements typically promises buyers exciting results like mental clarity, enhanced creativity, and a razor-sharp memory. What you actually get inside that bottle is likely to be something quite different. For instance, it might include a drug licensed in Russia to treat traumatic brain injuries or to treat stroke complications in Europe. An analysis published in Neurology Clinical Practice found that eight cognitive enhancement supplements and two workout supplements contained five potent drugs that are not approved by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. The supplements referred to as nootropics, which stimulate or inhibit certain neurotransmitters in the brain, are widely available to purchase online. Peter Cohen, one of the authors of the analysis, says companies that sell supplements from workout supplements to sexual energy concoctions that you've probably seen at your local gas station many times don't always accurately report ingredients. Cohen stated, if you wanted to shop for some of these supplements with these unproved drugs on their label, they would be tremendously easy to find. We can't be assured that products that are being sold to improve memory sharpness with you name it are free of foreign drugs. Right now, we have to avoid all supplements that are marketed as brain boosters. This is where I <laughs> go off the rails with these drug pronunciations, but we're going to go for it. <laughs> the team, which searched for products containing pyrazitram, a drug commonly marketed as a nootropic, found 10 products in their search and a deep analysis revealed drugs not included on the label included venpositine, a prescription drug used to treat stroke and cognitive impairments, phenibut, a drug used to treat anxiety and famously actually given to Soviet cosmonauts to combat insomnia, and picamillin, a Russian prescription drug used to treat neurological conditions, which the FDA has already issued warnings about to five companies whose dietary products contain the product in 2015. Cohen noted the potential harm of mixing these drugs together, which included several stories of overdoses caused by phenibut, which has been used as a smart study drug and was linked to one case of seven teenage overdoses at a Queensland private school. Dietary or, quote, brain-boosting supplements don't have to go through clinical trials to prove their effectiveness or safeness, like most drugs do, as they only need to contain something that you might otherwise come by naturally. An example of this would be vitamins, which is why they're regulated like food and not drugs. As supplements seek to live up to their advertised claims, more companies are turning to potent illegal prescription drugs to deliver results. A 2018 paper published by the American Medical Association found that the FDA identified 776 adulterated supplements, some with contaminated prescription drugs, but the agency only issued voluntary recall letters to 360 of them. So Mika, in your in your experience, is the FDA, you have experience with the FDA, is the FDA doing enough to counteract these claims? Uh, and should they be responsible for overseeing supplements similar to how they oversee drugs? Um, well, you know, honestly, I think that 
you know, the proof is in the pudding, right? I mean, clearly there's there's not enough being done. These these pharmaceutical compounds get, you know, put into these supplements in unbeknownst sometimes to the FDA. And so clearly there's this kind of really hard degree of, of inability to monitor and to catch this, right? So, and as, as Peter Cohen pointed out in the article, we treat supplements and multivitamins in this country a lot differently when it comes to regulation. Um, that's always been the FDA's purview to take that stance. Um, and honestly, I feel like if you look at just what they have to do with protecting public health with pharmaceutical drugs, it's no wonder this happens. The FDA has been responsible for the approval and the oversight of over 20,000 pharmaceutical drug products since the FDA's inception. And um, to this day, they take a lot of time just to kind of, you know, work on drugs in new development, um, drugs in post-market use. And so therefore, they have a a lot to do, Um, not to mention all the other things with regards to medical devices, food regulation. The fact that this is actually slipping through is not a surprise. I honestly think that it will probably slip through for many more decades, likely, unless there is an overhaul and there's massive regulation change because right now the current um, practices and the current you know organizational structure and priorities are just not set up at the FDA to do anything about this. Does the FDA just not have enough money and by cause of that enough workers to take on this extra load? That's a very good question. So I've never worked at the FDA. I have worked closely with the FDA. Um, so my background is in clinical drug research. Um, I've also worked before that in mental health and social services. But from what I you know, remember over the years in working with the FDA, there is a little bit of a, a, a moving target with, with regards to uh, people coming in and out of the FDA. They have issues with staff turnover. Even at the very helm at the top, the commissioner changes almost with each administration, sometimes multiple times within the same presidential administration. So they have a, a history of staff turnover. They also have a history of budget issues. There's actually some controversy around that because you know some um, opponents of how the FDA uses their money and budgets their spending and uses their their money um, has been criticized because you know there's been a lot of information and discussion around the fact that the FDA's budget is largely supported by pharmaceutical companies because pharmaceutical companies are required to pay these hefty fees to put their new drug applications in. So I think that there is a challenge with regards to the organizational structure and the staffing and just the priorities and how they allocate that from year to year. Well, I imagine with, you know, I'm always on social media about it, but it's kind of true. But I imagine with this kind of the the supplement craze that's been going on and all these influencers promoting these dietary supplements and stuff of that nature, there's more and more and more and more of these products coming in, you know, coming into our uh, pharmaceutical system. And it's just a case of we can, you know, knock down 10 of them, but there's going to be 100 more behind it kind of coming in and we, we just can't keep up. And I think it's going to take some type of controversy or a major story, almost like the opioid epidemic and mm-hmm. the news that just hit today with the, the big business with the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma. Um, I think there's going to be take something like that to really maybe shift the industry and the focus and the regulation and the oversight. Because honestly, like you said, I mean, I think particularly with the advent of technology. If you think 20, 30 years ago, we didn't have Twitter and and all these different social media platforms. And so nowadays there's apps to help prescribing go faster and easier. We can massively advertise, you know, both prescription drugs as well as these supplements and vitamins. And people who shift away from traditional healthcare say, listen, I'm going to go to the vitamin and supplement section of my local Whole Foods and I'm going to pick this stuff up and I'm going to be healthier. So it's almost like there's this kind of societal normative mindset that, hey, these things are good. So why question that they're not good? You know, the FDA, they have their work cut out for them. I think they know this is like a dark, deep secret, not even deep secret, but a dark, deep, like, you know, stepchild that's like locked away <laughs> in a closet somewhere. And you're like, okay, I need to deal with this. I can't mm-hmm. keep ignoring this. And at some point they're going to have to do it. Well, I feel like it's kind of what you're saying. It's going to get more and more or it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse, you know, before it does get better, we're going to need that, you know, the, the uh, Purdue Pharma, you know, being uh, fined $8 billion. We're going to need something big like that to change it. Like you said, 
Because, I mean, it's been a while since I've been to college, but taking caffeine pills and these study boosting bills, pills, which, I mean, I don't know the exact chemical makeup of, you know, these pills and the drugs in them, but it's almost like you're taking meth just to try to pass this class or just to try to study more. I know a lot of kids my age and a bit younger college age kids, they're taking these pills because... I can stay up and study longer, but there's not any repercussions immediately. And then they're saying, well, I took this pill. I studied. I got, I passed. Uh, I don't know exactly what constitutes a passing these days, but I passed. I feel good. And then 50 years later down the line, they might have liver problems or problems with, you know, kidneys. And they're like, well, maybe it was taking all these caffeine pills in college to try to keep up. You know, what I like about what, you know, safest drug does is, really educating people on this type of situation. Yeah. I mean, it really is something that it, it, it's a hard thing that we're taking on just because right now medication harm is not on the map as a major public health priority, which, you know, for those of us in the space and there's, there's more people than people realize that kind of work in this space, even though they may just kind of center on a specific drug class or a drug type. Mm -hmm. But for those of us in this space, it's it's quite shocking because we understand that medications are responsible for killing over 100,000 people in the US every year. And that actual number is really unknown because it's not uncommon for someone's medication death to be listed differently on their death certificate. So the primary cause of death is not the medication, maybe more a secondary or an underlying cause of death. So detecting those medication deaths are very hard. And detecting medication, drug-induced injury and illness is way harder um, because we rely so much on clinical judgment. Um, just think about gun violence, for example, in this country. Um, I just got an email not too long ago because I'm a member of the American Public Health Association or the APHA. And the email was saying how, hey, you know, all of us professionals need to band together because gun violence in America is a public health crisis that is killing 40,000 people a year. And we can't allow this to happen. This is, these numbers are unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I want to know where is the unacceptable, you know, stance on medication-related death. I think in some ways the the industry, which, you know, is this very uh, nebulous, defined bubble of all kinds of different people and, and groups, whether it's pharmaceutical companies and healthcare professionals, has been able to, in some ways, I feel like take advantage a bit of the fact that uh, the American public, you know, we want to be healthy. We don't want to be sick. And so we want to trust and rely that if something is on the market, it's FDA approved, it's not being pulled off the shelf, it's going to help us. We have a huge reliance on the trust factor and it's just built into our culture. Yeah, that consumer trust is is so vital. You know, I'm in Minnesota here, so we have a lot of targets. But if I go to Target and I see a supplement or, or something of that nature on the shelf, I'm trusting that this has been vetted to the point where it's safe for consumer consumption. And we get in a lot of trouble when we realize studies like this that find all these uh, uh, international prescription drugs that the FDA is like, this is not okay in the US, but you know, in Russia, it may be okay. I, I kind of want to get into that as well as like, why is there such a difference in the, at least to what you know, difference in the regulations between drugs in the US compared to you know, Russia, China, whatever was mentioned in this article? There's so many different countries it, with with very specific regulatory standards and expectations with regards to the pharmaceutical drug products they allow for their population to be exposed to. And so I think the number one reason for that is the fact that countries can do how they want to do. But I will say that, you know, with regards to certain countries, like the ones in this article um, in Russia, Europe references here, um, allowing some of these products to, to be in these in their population, it also is a reversal. There are medications here in our country where the U.S. may say, hey, it's okay, but other countries say no. For example, when it comes to consumer, direct-to-consumer drug advertising, uh, many people may not know this, but there's only two countries in the entire world that actually allow that to happen, and that's the U.S. and New Zealand. <laughs> yes. There are folks in this space who believe that the U.S. may be actually a little bit liberal with regards to um, allowing certain medications to be used in the way that they're used in this country, or maybe even approved. So some countries actually show a little bit more um, conservative, prudent approach with regards to these medications. But, you know, we see these differences because every country is different and they have that right to be. There's no global body that says, hey, 
you're going to do this and everyone's going to do that. And that's what it is. In my own experience, you know, my dad had a similar back injury to Peyton Manning, Hall of Fame quarterback. And Peyton Manning was able to go to uh, some European country, I believe, and get this controversial stem cell Mm. injection into his back and, you know, fix the issue. And it just comes down to, you know, what we believe is right and what obviously the uh, the abortion issue is a big issue when it comes to stem cells here in the US it may not as, or it may not as be as much in Europe and those kinds of countries but it is important that you do have some sort of education on what you're putting in your body at the end of the day if you're willing to put something in your body i think you should be willing to take the time to do the research and figure out what you're actually putting in your body. If you're taking supplements to be healthy, but you're not actually looking at the ingredients and really doing the research on what that supplement does, I think you're being a bit too naive when it comes to consumer trust. Agreed. And I, and one thing that I learned over the years working in clinical drug trials, and I worked for companies that were hired by pharmaceutical manufacturers who paid for the entire study. And normally these were on studies where they were looking for a brand new drug to get to market. Um, every now and then I'd work on a study where they were relabeling it. So they were looking to you know, have it for a new indication. So instead of selling it now for headaches, we want to sell it for urinary incontinence. Mm-hmm. In, in my time of working you know, behind the scenes of clinical research, the one thing that was incredibly apparent to me um, that it would have never been apparent to me, I think as an outsider, was the fact that these medications are chemical compounds, they're very potent, and they can react in someone's body, metabolize in very unknown and known ways, in very unpredictable ways. And when these medications go through your system, your liver and your kidneys are always going to be vulnerable. You know, I, I tell my mom because she has uh, multiple chronic conditions and she's always being prescribed medications and she's someone who I would consider a high medication user, which is a whole nother kind of phenomenon mm-hmm. here in the US, that, you know, if you are taking a medication and say it's actually causing toxicity to your liver or your kidney, you're not necessarily sitting at the coffee shop and go, ooh, wait, something's happening with my kidneys. You know, (laughs) it normally doesn't happen until you it's like too late or you actually start to feel something, you know, some kind of actual negative symptoms. Or in the case of my mom, certain medications she takes and because of her conditions, she has to go and get regular blood work. And so you look at the person's kidney and liver levels through the blood work paneling and you can understand some changes. But even then we have flaws in our system because we don't always get baseline measures. Like in clinical research, we're all over these subjects, right? And mm-hmm. it's just totally different from when the drug's actually on the market. We have tons of pharmacovigilance safety team members and scientists. We're looking at patients every day, every week, what have you, running blood and lab results. We're taking baseline, which means that we look at their body and their levels before we ever introduce the medicine into their body. And then we see what changes and we look at correlations. We do none of that in healthcare, in the real world, right? We just give someone medicine, there you go. And so when you start to have these deteriorations, these toxicity buildups, and God forbid if you're on more than one medicine, so it's hard to detect which one caused it, mm-hmm. we don't have proof to say sometimes, hey, you know, well, when before we gave it to you, this is what it looked like for you. And so it kind of creates this really, you know, kind of cloud and snowball of issues and health issues that makes it really hard to just detect um, and to, to wait, lay weight on and claim that this was caused by X. Let's do it like a quick sidebar on like the Oxycontin, the, the Purdue Pharma. So the testing of that is is done to a point where it's it's viable to the public, but does the issue then become doctors over prescribing it or is it there is there an issue where it's too addictive in the testing but we're like eh, we can push this through or is it a combination of both I know right very very good questions and you know what and I, I it's so funny because I in looking at the Purdue Sackler family pharma story develop over the years through this opioid epidemic and crises I've been fascinating in the sense that I would love to speak or read the book of anyone who's actually on those clinical trials, because I know someone who works on those, there are so many stories the public never hears and knows about. I mean, Mm -hmm. just take last week, I forget which company it was with their coronavirus vaccine, they had to stop it or halt it. Just the other day, they said, no, we're not going to share details. And neither is FDA, they're both taking the stance, we're not going to tell you. But I know behind closed doors, when issues happen, we're having tons of meetings, we're having tons of retraining, we're creating corrective action plans, all that kind of good stuff. I will say this. I think that when it comes to Oxycontin in that story, the FDA always says that they make approvals based on two key parameters, safety 
and efficacy. So is it safe based on the population that was put into the carefully selected population put into the clinical trial, mind you? And is it efficacious? Does it actually work? Well, with that, if you don't mind me um, jumping in, at least in your experience and what you know, you know, you hear about these stories where drugs are prescribed for a typical man. Is that is that true? Like, is most of these trials based on the reactions that men have and then women are being overprescribed because of that? There's definitely been some evidence in the long-term history of the FDA's existence to show that. I will say that earlier... Well, at one point this year, we took a little bit more of a look, safest drug, at at least the brand new drugs or the novel medicines that hit the U.S. market for the first time. There are some preliminary summary data that the FDA does a very good job in sharing on their website. And when we looked at at least for this year's brand new drug approvals, you saw actually quite a great deal of gender representation for both men and women. So I almost want to say that, yes, there's been a history there's medications right now that were approved based on inadequate gender representation. But I think that at least what I've seen in recent years, it looks like, you know, there's been a lot of improvement there. However, we can't forget the fact that, yes, men and women can metabolize medications differently. And that has been identified in the literature. Well, and then to kind of wrap this whole story up back to supplements and the craze of supplements, why why do you believe these over-counter supplements have become so mainstream where you have people like Courtney or not Courtney, Khloe Kardashian promoting these dietary supplements? Celebrities... <laughs> Promoting dietary supplements and even pharmaceutical drugs has been around for a long time. It's incredibly effective. I mean, any celebrity, anyone with high network influence, I mean, they can market the heck out of anything, right? Mm -hmm. Her reason probably for it could even be monetary. But aside from that, I think people are drawn to supplements because, again, it presents itself like an alternative, a really nice, friendly alternative to doing anything else. You don't have to work hard. Exactly. Exactly. Same thing with medicine. People do take medicines too because, hey, I don't have to exercise as much. Let me just take this. We want a quick fix. You know, it's it, I almost feel like it's the American way. You know, we can have these dreams. We can do whatever we want. We can be the best to the point almost we can be immortal, right? If we can boost our brain power in our memory with just this one little pill and it's so healthy. Look at it. We want to believe in that. I 100% agree. I, you know, there's the common perception that Americans are hard workers and they'll take the long way to get somewhere as long as it's hard, which it is true. But I think overall in the history of the US, you know, we, I mean, <laughs> we find the easiest way to do things. That's the capitalist market. If I can find a a way to do it cheaper and to make more money doing it, I'm going to do it. That has turned into how we or our behavior towards health and, you know, wanting these lean fit bodies. Hey, you could, you know, work out for 10 years and maybe get that body or you can take this dietary supplement, which is sorry to be crass, but basically just gives you diarrhea and dehydrates you and get there. And people are being like, well, I might as well, you know. Just take this risk, not actually knowing the true risk of what, you know, as I mentioned, could happen in 50 years or so. Right. And I think just even when we talk about, at least in clinical research, and I would say even in the post-market world, we look at things like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea as non-serious events, adverse events. And we kind of just say, hey, that's just the process, right? So we just kind of accept that that's just what it is. But I would argue that you know, our body doesn't naturally vomit, right? Mm -hmm. we, it's not, a, you know, we don't naturally feel pain and say, oh yeah, that's okay. We have pain receptors so that the body can tell the brain, hey, there's a problem in this part of your body. There's a problem that needs to be fixed. So I almost feel like, you know, we even have this kind of culturalization of just, it's okay just to be somewhat sick to get to the ultimate reward. <laughs> I would like to welcome to the show the executive director of Safest Drug, Mika Polik. Safest Drug, a national nonprofit, exists to prevent and alleviate medication illness, disability, and death in the United States through education, research, advocacy, and uh, coming on shows like ours. Mika, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. As part of Water Cooler Talk, supporting the communities that support us, I'm glad to be able to bring you on the podcast to talk more about what you're doing with Safest Drug and how that work has been a positive addition to the community. As you know, through your work, education is so vital to bridging the gap and understanding sometimes confusing language. I'm not always perfect with it, but it's important that we talk about these types of topics to be clear and concise, especially when people are relying on 
people like us for a source of information. And one of the topics you mentioned in our pre-chat was the difference between medication harm, which we kind of mentioned in that previous story, and substance abuse. What's what's to be known about those differences? One thing that we want to do at Save Fish Drug is to kind of put medication harm on the map. And there's many ways to, to just even unpackage that, right? So, you know, you'll see on our website reference to medication-related illness, disability, and death, even reference to medication injury and death. And there's folks in the space to talk about prescribed harm, iatrogenic harm. And so there's many ways to kind of unpackage that, but the focus really is primarily on the prescription, the medication itself, Mm -hmm. actual pharmaceutical drug product. On the other hand, with regards to substance abuse, that world really takes into account what happens to individuals who not only get exposure to medications or pharmaceutical drug products, but also alcohol and illicit drugs. Um, It's not uncommon, for example, when I'm talking to folks who you know may not know anything about what we're doing and 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 are trying to make that connection around what this means, to say, hey, you should talk to this drug-free or you know stop the war on drugs person, and you know they're really working hard on almost combining illicit and prescription drug issues together, and that's actually a layer within the opioid epidemic too. I mean, the numbers that we hear who die. According to the CDC, for example, in 2018, I think there were about 15,000 prescription drug opioid deaths. So the total number of opioid deaths for that year, most of them had nothing to do with prescription opioid. But of course, we know that it kind of started from people's exposure, right? Yeah. And looking for that illicit you know, use as well. But I think we want to kind of inform people and make sure they understand the difference that what we're doing is really looking at that prescription drug space and that only as opposed to what happens with regards to substance abuse, even though we want to partner and we do want to align and collaborate with um, our substance abuse friends as well. Well, I imagine when, you know, government budget time comes around and a death is, you know, an opioid death may be reported as a substance abuse, abuse death compared to a um, a medical harm death, then you're looking at that like, hey, we still need more funding for medical harm compared to substance abuse. And, you know, those numbers kind of get confused. So there's more funding going where, I mean, obviously, you know, there needs to be good funding for drug abuse, but there's going to be some cases where that funding needs to go somewhere else to help uh, missions like what you and your company are doing. Yes, 100%. It's almost like we have to in our kind of preliminary conversations, and we're just starting to talk to different types of funders, right? Particularly like foundations, for example. In those conversations, and we learn about what those foundations are drawn to, whether it's the environment or childhood cancer or whatever it might be, you know, this issue we're looking to fight for here is never on anyone's map. And people go, wait a minute, what do you mean that medication can kill somebody? And what do you mean it's 100,000 plus deaths. It's just something that's not talked about. Um, I almost feel like it's just, it just doesn't have the mainstream attention that it really deserves. At the same time, you know, I've worked on the inside and I've worked with all kinds of, you know, health researchers, scientists, scientists, physicians, nurses, you name it. And, you know, I know the conversation, I know the thought, you know, in general. Um, a lot of times there's not a lot of weight put on this because it's just not part of the healthcare practice. And to have conversations with people about the fact that this medication can kill you is not something that people want to touch mm-hmm. because no one will want to take the medication. That's kind of the mindset. But we have to have these transparent conversations because people, you know, they'll weigh the risk and benefits, right? We do that with anything. We say, hey, you know, if I take this, if I do that, if I buy that, these are the things that can happen. Everyone has a right to make the judgment call to say, you know what, I'll I'll take it and we'll watch for these things to possibly happen. Well, I imagine that has to be a hard conversation to have. I don't know if you've had these conversations, but say, you know, you have a mother whose son died of an opioid, not generally abuse, but, and then you figure out he was just overprescribed these medications. Like, I mean, how do you even have those conversations with a mother where it's a, where, you know, you're telling her your son didn't die of opioid abuse. Your son died of being overprescribed for medicines. And maybe you could take legal action against the doctor. Like, is that conversations you have at Safest Drug? No, actually, we don't. We don't. I mean, normally, by the time that people come to us, they've already kind of reached that point on their own, if you will. Mm -hmm. One of our greatest desires or goals is to really get people to inform themselves and to advocate for themselves. And so, you know, when it comes to, again, when it comes to pharmaceutical drug-induced injury, death, disability, it's really hard to 
identify it sometimes and to have the medical establishment actually lay clinical, you know, weight to it actually happening. It's almost like if you have, you are drug harmed, the person who prescribed it to you, you have to go to them and tell them, and they're going to probably tell you, no, you're not. So going to people who are in a biased role to then lay claim and validity to <laughs> the issue, right? And so you find, we talk to a lot of people who are really angry and upset, a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, because they feel like, you know, I took something, I didn't know what I took, no one really told me, I didn't know that this was an issue. Um, a lot of people actually, Adam, have experiences, is right on the label, but they never read it and no one told them about it. So they're just like, I wish I had known to you know to ask for an alternative or to watch for these signs. Um, we also talk to people who take, um, aside from overprescribing, they'll take medication for longer than it's intended. The FDA, they're in a really particular situation because they're here to protect public health and they do that in some regards, but then they may fall short. And so they kind of, you know, they're in this weird space, right, where they're friend and foe for some people. But I think they do a really good job with regards to making sure those drug labels are updated, you know, but then that information doesn't transfer through the healthcare system very well and down. Yeah, if you're not reading that label, it doesn't really matter what you put on the label. And I think it kind of goes back to what we talked about when it comes to consumer trust. I trust my doctor that he knows or she knows what they're talking about. I didn't spend eight years going to medical school. I couldn't even hack it for a year in college. So I have this inherent trust in my doctor in that system that what they're prescribing me is what I need to remain healthy or be healthy or recover from an injury. Right, exactly. And as a matter of fact, you know, um, I read this blog post about a year or two ago, and they were summarizing this survey that they had done with these physicians to just say, hey, based on these new label updates, these safety updates, how is it going? Can you keep up with it? And there was an admission, a very honest and candid admission from most of the respondents, these physicians who said, listen, it's very hard to keep up with them. We can't memorize all of this stuff. And we do think there needs to be a better job in kind of watching it and paying attention to it. This is why I also tell people, you know, tap into your, not only your doctor, but tap into your pharmacist. These pharmacists, they have an enormous job to dispense medicines. And some of them, particularly working at the big box change, have quotas to me. So they're dispensing in, in medicines at a high quantity all day and they need certain numbers. But these pharmacists, you know, a lot of them are at the PharmD or doctor pharmacy level. They have advanced knowledge on these pharmaceuticals. And if um, they may know things, more contemporary, you know, late breaking things, more than maybe even a physician may know just because of their, I guess, closer connection to these prescription drugs and their ability and their responsibility to just really know just about that, mm -hmm. just about this product. Well, no, I, I, I mean, I appreciate what you do. Education is such a big factor in what I do. And anytime you can have somebody doing education like you're doing in productive and meaningful ways, it's it's important. Yeah, thank you. Uh, listeners, if you'd like to support Mika and the work her and her team are doing, you can do so by heading to their website, www.safestdrug.org. Once again, www.safestdrug.org drug.org. You can also follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Safest Drug. Once again, for those in the back on all major social platforms at Safest Drug. And of course, you can always find those links included in the description of this episode and through our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. All right, Mika, are you ready to go into our final news story of the episode? Absolutely. Let's do it. This is from the Salt Lake Tribune, October 28th, 2018. To fight high drug prices, Utah will pay public employees to go fill prescriptions in Mexico. Amid a flurry of national proposals to bring exorbitant U.S. drug prices in line with prices in neighboring countries, we're still having this conversation two years later. For example, insulin costs about $200 per vial in the U.S. compared to about $30 for the same vial in Canada. One Utah insurer has a different option for their patients. Pay them to go to Mexico. PEHP, which covers about 160,000 public employees and family members, is offering a plane ticket to San Diego from Salt Lake, transportation to Tijuana, and a $500 cash payout to patients who need certain expensive drugs for multiple sclerosis, cancer, or an autoimmune disorder. Um, in my research, and these are <laughs> these are pandemic prices, yeah. an average plane ticket from Salt Lake City to San Diego is about $200, to Tijuana from there is about a gallon of California gas at $3.19, and then the added $500 comes to a cost of 7 
$103.19, about, about somewhere about there. Uh, Travis Tolley, a clinical operations director at PEHP, stated, that money is pretty small in comparison to the difference between US prices and Mexico prices. You're thinking $703.19, that's a lot of money. But let me give you an example. For an example, Avonex, which treats MS, costs about $6,700 for a 28-day supply in the U.S., but costs about $2,200 through PEHP's contracted clinic in Tijuana. For a three-month supply of Avonex, the maximum allowed, the savings of $13,500 more than covers that above $703.19. Patients of the insurer who participate will fly to San Diego from Salt Lake City, be driven through a priority lane at the border crossing, and arrive at a clinic which PEHP director Chet Loftus described as top-notch and has compared it to a Mayo or Cleveland clinic here in the United States. Medical tourism is not new. PEHP itself has previously offered coverage for out-of-control medical procedures, but without the cash incentives at $500, patients haven't been open to using that option. Now that clients are eligible for up to $3,900 a year in reward payments for trips to Tijuana for procedures and drugs, PEHP hopes more patients will be willing to participate in the trip south. Republican Norman Thurston, a member of the Utah House of Representatives, stated, Why shouldn't we pay $300, the price of a plane ticket at that time two years ago, to go to San Diego, drive across to Mexico, and save the system tens of thousands of dollars? If it can be done safely, we should be all over that. When you start looking at the list of these high-priced drugs people are taking, you think, how in the world can there be such a big price difference between the U.S. and other countries? What's going on? So let me get to Representative Thurston's point. What is going on? <laughs> it, well, it definitely, first of all, this, this article, I found it very fascinating and very timely because I just so happened to have the ability to meet someone who's in the medical tourism business. So mm -hmm. I was like, I had never really thought about that as an industry, as a budding industry at that. But I would say it's going on because it can <laughs> and clearly it needs to. And again, you know, every country is different. I read this book Years ago, um, I think the woman who wrote it, she's now a professor at Harvard. She's retired from the New England Journal of Medicine. She used to be their editor. And she just, you know, laid out all these very specific pieces of details from her insider view of working in the industry. And the one thing that just kind of really jumped out to me from reading that was, you know, her claim that, you know, the U.S. is one of those countries that pharmaceutical companies just love because we welcome and we embrace prescriptions. And it's such a place where you can be, you can have a lot of profit, and a lot of revenue, and we can raise the price. I mean, honestly, drug prices have been an issue since I was a little girl and I'm in my 40s. So, I mean, this issue is always there. <laughs> I mean, but it makes sense too, right? Because I mean, these pharma companies, they're for-profit companies. If you have your for-profit company and private company selling gloves, you want to make as much money as possible. They're no different. That's that's just, you know, corporation modeling, business modeling. But this is happening because people are so frustrated at this long-standing issue in the U.S., which is high prescription drug prices. And I also think it's happening because there are individuals who literally have had good outcomes from certain medications and they need them and they really are willing to do anything and everything to get them. It looks like now there's actually outside individuals, entities, companies who want to support that because they can also save money. I think there's a lot of positives with capitalism, but a drawback of capitalism is high drug prices because, you know, as you say, you find people that, you know, want to monetize our health. You know, we talked about an episode with Chris Bales where Canadian family in Florida threw their dead grandpa in the backseat, a little Miss Sunshine style to drive back to Canada because it was so expensive to, you know, have funeral proceedings in the US because of this capitalist market towards big pharma quotes on that. We're literally bankrupting people for going to the hospital. You know, on your website, you mentioned ER visit on average is $1,300. I don't have $1,300 in my bank account to go to the hospital if for some reason, you know, in ER for accidents, if I have an accident, I don't have that money to properly rehabilitate myself and I'm going to go into debt and I don't want to go into more debt. College was expensive. Even one year of college was expensive. And so I think we need to do better on bringing those prices down and giving people affordable health care. So if someone gets hurt, they're not spending the next two, three 10 years of their life paying off these bills because it is ridiculous that basic human health is not a basic human right. I mean, I was just talking with someone on Twitter this week about how a one-year supply 
of Humira, a very popular medication indicated for rheumatoid arthritis, plaque psoriasis, and a bunch of other conditions. Um, I think it's actually been hailed as a number one selling drug in the world. A one-year supply, $70,000, you know, help you. I mean, God help you if you don't have the money to pay for that, if you don't have good health insurance. But yeah, I think that we've just put, you know, the American public under a really tight constraint here of desperation to say, listen, I either pay $3,000 for this medicine or I pay $3 for it. And who wouldn't make the decision to say, I'm paying $3? Yeah. And, you know, I know it's more anecdotal evidence, but, you know, I've heard stories of people where it comes to insulin. It's like, well, I either have to pay rent this month or pay for my insulin. I'm going to put my body on the line just so I can have a roof over my head. Yeah. I mean, people are willing to make huge sacrifices and have to really go out of the, the way to really make it work. I mean, most Americans don't have the money to spend that much on, you know, healthcare. And I think a, it, it's a very touchy topic and, and very heated topic for a lot of people because you think, hey, I just want to live. I just want to breathe. And that's all I'm looking for. But yet you're going to make me pay all of this money. One thing that I remember seeing increase, particularly in the recent years before I left the industry in clinical research was this desire for the industry to start focusing more on rare disease drugs. Well, the reason for that was because there were incentives. Um, you may have had a shorter turnaround cycle with approving the drug. Um, you may have had a little bit more financial incentive. And at the end of the day, when a pharmaceutical company is able to get their drug approved by the FDA, that drug is now on the market. And that's a huge, huge milestone. Now, in the U.S., you do not, doctors, clinicians, whoever has prescribing rights, they can prescribe a drug for any reason they want. That's called off-label prescribing. And so I would say there's huge incentive as a pharma company, get that drug on the market and figure it out after that. Because at some point, once you get on the market, you can probably get it indicated for other things. But what they'll do in these rare disease circumstances is they get this drug on the market that apparently is safe and effective for this rare disease, but they charge folks tons of money. We're talking like six figures. Well, yeah, as you know, we're talking, you know, multiple companies are working on a COVID vaccine. And it's come to the point where it's a race to see who's first, not always the best product is first. It's, you know, what shortcuts can we take to be the first? Because if you're a company that, you know, develops the COVID vaccine first, you're making a boatload of money. I think that's why we're having this debate specifically in the debates on would you take a vaccine if it was done and ready to go? And a lot of people are worried because I don't want to put something in my body that has been rushed to try to fit a demand. I mean, it's definitely a worthy controversy and a worthy concern. Um, I will say as someone, again, who works in clinical research, I mean, we spend years testing these drugs and we claim them to be rigorous clinical trials. And even in those rigorous clinical trials, we make mistakes. For example, last year I attended this opioid conference here in DC. And I remember one of the presenters saying that theoretically, when you think about the prescription opioids, you know, and this can go back decades when the first one hit the US market, theoretically, based on what we knew at that time, it's something that probably should have never been on the market. And so we we have these these circumstances and these issues where the FDA even pulled drugs off the market. Fenfen killed thousands of people, Vioxx, you know, these horrible tragedies that kind of went through the rigorous studies, right? They went through the seven, eight, nine years, and yet we still had issues. I think that people being concerned is valid, but I, I almost want to say that without us understanding exactly how those trials are run and exactly what's happening um, behind the scenes, we don't know exactly what is happening and it doesn't mean that weight can't be given to the product being good when it hits here. But I think folks will be hesitant. They'll be cautious and they'll have reason to be. Do you think kind of connecting back to that first story, do you think these trials should be more public knowledge or is it stuff that the general public just couldn't really understand? Like, you know, obviously don't want to get too deep into it, but, you know, it goes through like animal testing and then human testing and then, you know, all these different phases. Should that be more public or would the public just not understand what goes into making these drugs FDA approved? You know, honestly, I think there's a lot of things that can be public in the clinical trial space. I think that the industry kind of hides behind laws of copyright, infringement, proprietary information is a big buzzword in the pharma world. There are certain um, jobs I've had over the years where we'll say, hey, sign this here. So a year after you stop working here, if you leave us, you can't talk about this study. Yeah. You know, so there's this huge desire to make sure that we don't share everything. And I think that that also 
creates a layer of distrust, right? Because there are things that people should probably know. Clinical trial world is, it's not easy. It can be messy and there can be lots of issues. There's things that happen on studies that I worked on. We would spend all this time with our farmer company funder and sponsor to figure out how do we package this and how do we fix this before we tell the FDA? Because we have to tell them, but we need to figure out how to say it. So even on the, with the folks who regulate and oversee the people who are touching it, you know, touching these drug trials, they're not being always very transparent um, or taking their time with that. And so I think in, a, in the ideal world, honestly, I'm like, how do you trust behind closed doors for a pharma company to test their drug? Of course, folks are going to want to get a desired outcome or they want mm-hmm. a positive outcome. And then you say, hey, OK, give me what you got. And so I feel like almost like if you have a drug, it should be independently tested. Like, OK, pharma company, go through your <laughs> rigorous testing and then hand it over to someone else. And they're going to fact check it and clarify it. Right. <laughs> I think it might have been uh You'll have to correct me if you know, but I think it might have been like the person who developed the polio vaccine or something. He gave it away for free. He didn't patent it. I think it might have been that. I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, you hope when these drugs are being created that more people are like that. You know, we should be giving away these drugs for free. It shouldn't be all these copyrights and these patents. But I I do understand the monetary issue of I have to be able to, you know, put food on my table, put a roof over my head. I can't just give away stuff for free if I don't have the money to also support myself to create these drugs. You know, we talked about it in our Cecil Harris conversation, uh, an athlete supporting Nike, uh, like Serena Williams, obviously with what Nike is doing in all these third world countries. But is the good that Serena Williams is able to do with that Nike money outweighing the bad of what Nike is doing. Yeah, um, that's that's a tough one because I feel like there's there's interest, there's personal interest, there's business interests. These things collide, they get muddy, and I think in the world of anything dealing with health and medical, it it just kind of creates a whole nother situation of doubt, almost the burden to prove that we can trust you and that this is the right thing for the people. And I think that the healthcare industry's done a good job with marketing things as, you know, good and only focusing on the good, but not wanting to share the bad. And even in cases, look at the Sackler opioid situation, covering up the bad, mm-hmm. intentionally covering it up over long periods of time, um, even to the regulators, which, hey, I always say, if you, you know, cover it up with the FDA and you find out you're definitely in trouble then because they're <laughs> like, listen, we were on your side. We helped you get this thing approved. And even a lot of us too, um, it's almost like the mom catching their son doing something really bad. I love you. How dare you? I bought you that game and you're over here like, you know, concocting this horrible scheme with people on the internet. So, I mean, I think that, you know, I think there's just this layer of trust that we need to always think about, but it's hard to, you know, gain the trust when you've broken trust. Yes, that's, that's a, a, an excellent point. And, you know, as, as you mentioned, you know, the United States, New Zealand, one of the two only countries to regularly promote drugs on TV constantly. I have a lot of international friends who will watch US TV and be like, there's so many boner pills that you guys are promoting on TV. And it's crazy. But even with that, like you said, you know, those companies are packaging this idea and they're very clear on what that package is towards. But then at the end of the commercial, people will notice this as soon as I say it, they're listing all the side effects as quickly as possible. There's a marketing reason PR reason the optics don't look don't look great if you slow down and explain all these side effects but there's a reason that you know these drugs first off all these commercials are very vague I have no idea why Cialis is two people in the bathtub it just doesn't make sense to me but there's a basic idea of what this drug does and at the end of the commercial we're going to run through all the side effects as quickly as possible as quickly as possible and not only that i kind of have this love hate thing with regards to drug ads like i like to look at them and, and and even the ones in the magazines right in the print ads which we actually have some ideas around that maybe coming next year but um <laughs> but even the ones in the in the print ads but if you look on the commercial not only would they say these side effects really quickly, but if you notice, they basically take the they take the word and kind of dummy it down a little bit and make it watery down. So, so it doesn't feel as scary. You may experience upset stomach. This is this, that, that, that. But it really means something so much more than that, right? And then if you look at the very bottom, there's one commercial. I couldn't believe it. I looked at the very tiny print. It says, this may also cause Lou Gehrig's disease. And they're like, <laughs> wait a minute, hold up. They didn't even say that. Yeah. But they just put that in tiny print at the very bottom. Here's something that's interesting about disclosing. And, I, and I'm from the school of thought of tell people, tell patients, you know, let them know 
what they may be taking, right? And they will make judgment calls and you will get people to take it. But I think that they understand too, there's some people who say, you know, I don't want to take that. Kind of more like patient counseling. Exactly. Patient counseling, which is our hashtag tell patients right now is all about that in about six states where we're trying to get states to pass the laws to change and say, hey, a prescriber has to tell a patient and talk to them about these safety disclosures that are right here in black and white on the FDA label so that people understand what they're taking. Because honestly, Adam, there are things in that section, it's called patient counseling information, section 17, that literally says, tell your patient that this could cause this and tell them look for these signs. So this means a fever, 100.4 degrees. It means blinking eyes. It means it. So you have to tell people not just what can happen, but how to catch it. Right now, there's no laws in most states in the country to even require that. So I think that that's what's concerning too with these drug ads is that this this transparency. And one thing I also learned too in the clinical drug world, when we even send over all of our data to the FDA, there's certain things we don't even have to give them. Interesting. Right? And then there's certain things that don't have to be disclosed in the drug ads. So you have this whittling down of information, right? Over time, you know, I kind of geek out and I'll go actually to like the FDA approved drug letter and see the scientific advisory committee's 30 page, you know, discussion and mm-hmm. the analyzing the research data. Cause you'll see all the stuff kind of there, but you won't see it as it just kind of whittles down to the public. Well, Mika, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of these strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation, very educational conversation. Once again, listeners, if you'd like to support Safest Drug and their mission to prevent and alleviate medication illness, disability, and death in the United States, head to their website, www.safestdrug.org. Once again, a little slower, that's www.safestdrug.org. If you're not a website individual for some reason, you can instead support them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Safest Drug. Big ups on being able to get the uh, the same username on multiple platforms. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. You know, we kind of talked about a bit at the end there, uh, patient counseling. I want to go a little more more deeper into it if you have a little more time. You know, what's the, what's the importance of having that system in place for patients? You know, I know specifically in Minnesota, uh, we don't require that. Exactly. That's right. Your state. Your, your state is one of the six we're going after first. Um, and so the importance around that, again, is the fact that inside the patient counseling information section, section 17 of the FDA approved drug label, which all of these labels are available to the public in a PDF format on FDA.gov. That information has such wonderful, contemporary, very recent information around the known potential side effects. And so I always tell people, and this is something that we are very much aware of in the clinical research world, every medication, every drug has known and unknown side effects. And just because a drug's been on the market for 20, 30, 50 years, doesn't mean we're not still learning new things and the FDA is not getting what they call safety signals, like reports coming in about issues that don't end up saying, you know what, this needs to go on the label next as well. I always tell people that those FDA drug labels, that will be the most recent like known drug issues with regards to that particular medication that you can find. And so the fact that that information doesn't transfer to patient and consumers is really a disservice. So for example, right now, most states the only way you'll know is if you buy your drug at the pharmacy and when they tell you at the counter, hey, do you have any questions for the pharmacist? Unbeknownst to most people, that's your one and only opportunity for patient counseling. They never say it like that. But if you say no, you basically waive your right. You walk away. No one ever tells you. Alternatively, even if you say yes, normally, and I've had this happen to me, my mom has had this, the pharmacist comes over and they'll say, hey, how can I help you? Got any questions? So it's almost as if you tell me what you want me to tell you. Um, And then you're kind of relying on that person to share information and they can share as much or as little as they want. It's up to their discretion. So we have a a, a great fragmentation and a flaw in our system with regards to transferring that information over to patients. My mom, she took um, the drug Trulicity. She has type 2 diabetes. And she told me, you know what, Mika here, I'm taking it for several months. And I had no idea until I actually paid attention to the drug commercial that this could cause dehydration and I should drink water while I'm taking a lot of water. And and she just was like flabbergasted, like no one said this to me. And so we end up just kind of giving patients, people just, you know, give the drug label, give the product. Here's a tiny, tiny print. Good luck finding it out on your own. 
And that's just what it is. And we have to get better. Um, meanwhile, I'm not sure if you've ever heard about this, but there are health disparities. Not everyone gets the same treatment in healthcare. Yes. And that's been proven for many, many years. So if that's the case, then mandating patient counseling, I think, helps to alleviate that in the sense that, hey, everyone's getting the same thing. Everyone's being told. Everyone's going to have that conversation and have the ability to understand. Um, I don't think we should rely on people just interpreting some of this information on their own or finding out on their own, because I don't think that that is exactly what was the intention of the FDA approved drug label. That last point you added on is is super important because, you know, I had, I had a friend who her thesis was on how black women are treated differently during pregnancy than white women are and how a lot of the times that can lead to, you know, post um pregnancy issues with, you know, the child and all these issues. And if you're able to mandate these counseling and these talks and really get that information, because I always hope that people have good intentions when they're, you know, thinking about taking a medication that they'll do some sort of research. But when we get to places where people are treated differently because of how they look, how they sound, you know, what religion they believe in, in the medical practice, it's important that we get these mandates in place so that it's a more equal playing field. Exactly. It all comes down to equity, right? And that's kind of yes. the buzzword right now with regards to what's happening even in the philanthropic space. What I saw particularly with, of course, our country went through this coronavirus thing that really took hold and shape in March, April, and just was surging. And then things happened with George Floyd, right? And then, you know, this huge Black Lives Matter push, you know, and just so many people getting involved. And so in the philanthropic space, you know, I've been seeing a lot of funders who want to, you know, give to charities and organizations who are going to stamp out and help with, you know, social inequities, racial inequities, justice issues that impact a lot of vulnerable people in this country. And those vulnerable people you know, they're easily identifiable, whether it's by race, ethnicity, um, by status of your, you know, imprisonment, prior prison or felonies, even geography, certain cities and towns find so many more vulnerable individuals, education and, and also economics. And so we know how to identify vulnerable individuals, but, you know, how do we make sure that they are treated in the same way as other people who have greater means or greater education? ability and intellect to, you know, represent themselves and understand the information they're being given at the pharmacy. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Kind of the we have enough food to feed everyone, but we don't have the necessities in place to get that food to them. Exactly. Mika, thank you very much for the conversation. As always, thank you to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest hosted today by Mika, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and we'll just try and have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. Mika, the you know, this is this is your time to shine. I'm going to hand <laughs> over the show to you to close out the show however you seem fit. You know, I've had some people sing a song. You'd, no pressure on singing a song. But whatever you think needs to be said to perfectly wrap up this episode, the pressure is on and the floor is yours. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I appreciate it. First of all, thanks for having me on the show. I really Definitely. enjoyed myself. I, I love the concept. I love what you guys do here. And I guess in my closing, I, I want to just say two things. One, I want people to know that we are not anti-medication. We're not anti-vaccine. Um, we are anti-medication harm. And that's really the, the point is making sure that we stop ignoring the fact that people are getting sicker, losing time from work, having themselves face these you know, irre irreversible disabilities or actually even dying. We want to change that. We want to make sure that we pay attention to that segment and we look at people who are at risk and those who actually been harmed. And we do things and mobilize efforts to make things better and look at it from a public health perspective. So that's the one thing I want to share with people. The other thing is actually a little more playful. And I want to Give a shout out to my daughter and her friends. Um, they are K-pop fanatics. <laughs> and so I'm a K-pop mom. Um, and so I, <laughs> I've been to multiple K-pop concerts. And I just want to say shout out to those, the K-pop stands. Um, and, um, you know, keep listening to great music from that genre. <laughs> You're Putting in the work. I love it. <laughs> No, no, I'm a, I'm a huge Selena Gomez fan. She used, she recently did a collaboration with Blackpink, so I'm all for it. <laughs> there you go, Blackpink. Yes, they are definitely one of the groups that we have had more than once play on our our car radio. So, well, Mika, uh, I, I so much appreciate this conversation. I'll give you the 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 
during the episode praise of you're more than invited back for another conversation anytime. Thank you. Uh, But until next time, listeners, peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. What an episode, what a guest, what a time. Thank you once again to Mika for calling into the studio to talk about those bizarre news stories. As always, make sure to support her organization, Safe as Drug, and their mission to prevent and alleviate medication illness, disability, and death by heading to their website, www.safestdrug.org. But anyways, to the corrections. In the first story discussing the illegal prescription drugs found in brain-boosting supplements, To add on to Mika's point about the high turnover in the FDA, during the past three presidents, Trump has appointed five FDA directors, Obama appointed three, and George W. Bush as well appointed three FDA directors. So in a 20-year span, there has been 11 FDA directors. High turnover indeed. In 2019, the FDA budget was $5.7 billion, but as Mika mentioned, much of that money, 45%, comes from user fees from for-profit drug companies. And then finally, more so an add-on, the FDA has actually deemed pure caffeine powder to be potentially dangerous if taken at high amounts. So please do be careful taking these caffeine pills for a potential study marathon or what. Whatever people use caffeine pills for, I guess. And then in the second story discussing how to win a free trip to Tijuana and $500, the vaccine that was given away for free was the polio vaccine. It was it was created by Jonas Salk and his team. And if he would have patented the vaccine, he would have made a cool $7 billion. But he took the moral high ground and now polio is one step closer to being eradicated. Uh, unless, I guess unless anti-vaxxers have anything to do with it because you know what some blog by someone who has no medical training whatsoever should be taken as scientific fact people (laughs) all right water coolings that's another corrections corner thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to another episode of water cooler talk once again thank you to mika for calling into the studio and talking about some of the strangest and most weirdest news stories the world has to offer but anyways that's your corrections that's your episode so get out of here enjoy the rest of your week i'm Going back and forth on the mic, so it sounds this like it's an ASMR. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. <laughs>